What a wonderful passage we have before us. I'm going to begin reading Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 26, going down through verse 45, which is where the Magnificat then picks up after that. Now hear the Word of God. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast her mind in what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, thy handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days, and she went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias, and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my wound for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Our gracious Father, we come to this magnificent narrative that is bringing the historical context to its climax in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal King over all of those who govern. And how thankful we are that King Jesus is alive today. He is on His throne, and He is ruling over all of the affairs of our land and over all nations that have preceded it and over all of the kingdoms that will come. And His kingdom is eternal. And His reign is sure, and He rules with righteousness, and His power is sovereign. And how thankful we are that we have this King today, a King that can lead us to victory, a King that will deliver us from all of our oppressive enemies, a King that can address our insides and our outsides, and how thankful we are for our great King. We're thankful that we live in this day, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, on this side of Pentecost, empowered by the Spirit of God for the growing of the kingdom that has been growing for 2,000 years now. And how thankful we are for this text, this joyful time that we come around in the good news of the Lord who is the King. In His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here we are at the end of 2020. What a year this has been. So many had just longed for this year to be over, that a new year can begin, 2021. Early on, we had an outbreak of the coronavirus that has and continues to affect many people. We have seen the corruption of government in our land more than we've ever experienced in our nation's history. From the rioting and the violent protests that started around the George Floyd event 
to the defunding of the police, to the anarchist autonomous zones in several cities, much of which have been supported and encouraged by governing officials. We are seeing violence and senseless crimes in, for no reasons that have skyrocketed across our land, which are reported daily, which used to be exceptional kinds of reporting, have become not only common reporting, but the numerous occasions of those same kinds of things in several places. Native terrorism is rampant. Our national and many of our state's government is at an all-time high in corruption. Our nation is greatly divided. It appears that any significant event is now used politically to advance some corrupt cause to oppress the people and to exploit them. Marxism is the strongest it's ever been in the highest levels in both the church and the state. Or I should say the state and the church. We have no idea at this point who our next president is going to be, but I will say this, if Biden becomes the next president, we will have certainly the worst president in all of U.S. history. His cabinet that is already assembled has already demonstrated that. But it wasn't a whole lot different in the day in which the context of this narrative takes place between these two women. In fact, we've got it better now than they had it then. And here we have these two women, this joyful and giddy reunion under the Roman oppression and vile corruptions of their day. The Jews had been longing for, not for a simple year to be over, so that another year could then finally come, but for an entire era where the Jews had been without a king and that he had been under foreign corruption for several different regimes over hundreds of years. And then here they are, Elizabeth and Mary, bearing hope in their wounds. Help was on the way. God never forgot His covenant. He never forsook His people. And that is true today. God never leaves you, nor forsakes you, and God is King. And here we have a reunion of two cousins, Elizabeth, which is older in her years, and Mary, younger in her years, but cousins. Elizabeth had been childless and barren all of her married life. And Mary, a younger woman who was a virgin all of her life. And now both of these women are pregnant with boys in their womb. And right there, we should pause for just a second and consider the fact in light of redemptive history. Because when God established His covenant with Abraham 2,000 years before this particular celebration, Sarah was also barren. And beyond her childbearing years, and God visited her, and gave her a promise. Isaac was born to Sarah by supernatural, miraculous intervention. Isaac had a wife, Rebekah, who also was barren, but brought forth Esau and Jacob by supernatural intervention. Manoah was barren, to a, a married to a barren wife, of whose we, name we do not know, but we do know very much the boy that she gave birth to was a judge that would deliver God's people from their oppressors whose name was Samson. And here we have two more in this special line of ladies in a narrative of redemptive history, Elizabeth and Barren. And of course, Mary's situation was different, but nonetheless, miraculous. 
These ladies now come together after God has blessed them with a child. Mary just went with haste as soon as she found out Elizabeth was... And you know how ladies get when they hear another lady's pregnant. And now here is Mary pregnant, running to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is all excited, and Mary's all excited. You can see there it's a pretty giddy and joyful time as they're tripping over each other with great joy in the midst of a context of the world that they probably were pretty blind to at the time because the joy just transcends the context. What a happy reunion that must have been. What a joyful thing. And yet, the likes of which neither one of these ladies would know how profound, how tremendous that this thing that is about to come to pass would be. Both of those women would have sons who would die early in life, but who have been reunited in glory today. An angel appeared to Mary, who was at the time a virgin, informed her that he would, she would have a baby boy born, born to her, and she would have a male child that would be conceived in her while she was a virgin. And Jesus would be his name. It wasn't as though Mary and, Zechari- uh, and Joseph had to go through the book and try to figure out what names to name Jesus and what biblical character we should give the name after and what, what name sounds good to your... No, 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 none of that. Before the baby was even conceived, the name had been given. Jesus which was a derivative of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. This boy would be a deliverer sent by God, a deliverer who would be God. Verse 32 tells us he will be called the Son of God. Verse 32, at the end of that, he will be the long prophesied king who will sit on David's throne. These two children had a very special place in redemptive history. Now, there's application, I believe, right here that we can just pause for just a moment. We're a church who loves children, who loves having lots of children. But every child born is known by God ahead of time. Ahead of conception from before the foundation of the world. And God orchestrates in this world who is going to be born and to whom and when. We tend to think that our young ladies and our young men, they come together and they fall in love and they court and they get married and they come back and they get pregnant and and, and they begin having children. We just think that that's just commonplace. That that's just the way it is. And guess what? It's not like that. It's not like that. Every pregnancy is orchestrated by God with deliberateness, with purpose, because He knows the very child before the child is even conceived. And every child is unique, and every child is special, down to the very time that the woman gets pregnant and the very occasion where she gives birth. Everything is in God's utter and complete control. Sometimes God withholds children for a while. It's not just automatic. Until such a time that all of the other surrounding circumstances are just right. And then, perfectly, to the dot of the second and the minute, God's plan for that family and that child begins to move into action. And folks, that's a lesson for us, that we should neither be presumptuous nor discouraged about the birth of children because they are ultimately all and every one in God's control. 
that Magnificat, that wonderful song of Mary. It echoes back to another song of another barren woman, Hannah, who had prayed and had prayed. And God finally opened her womb and gave her a son who would be the first kingmaker of all of Israel. The birth announcement of Jesus was shrouded with great mystery. And the more we understand it, the more we don't understand it. The more we know, the more mysterious it becomes. Verse 35, when explaining how this thing will come to pass, and when Mary asked, the angel said that Mary will conceive of this male child by the Holy Ghost. And he will be called the Son of God, which makes him God himself. God is not multiple gods. He's one God. The mystery is that he exists in three persons, but one God. And there's something of a mystery there. And that is why great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh, the Scripture says. And by the end of the announcement that this angel has, and can you imagine this young unsuspecting virgin who is a spouse to Joseph to be finalized in marriage. And all of a sudden she has this visitation of an angel who tells her in short little discourse, Mary, the greatest thing in the entire world is about to happen and you're going to be right in the center of it. And you are going to give birth to the absolute most historical figure in the entire history of this world. And all the things wrong with this world, that baby is going to fix everything. And in just a short amount of time, in the announcement we have, Mary who is a virgin will remain that way until after Jesus was born And she would, in this situation, conceive of a child, a male child, by the Holy Ghost. And she would bring forth a son that God Himself will call His Son and will be the Son of God. That's not enough. He is the long-awaited throne of David. He is the long-awaited deliverer and the great king that had been prophesied all the way back from Genesis 49, all the way through to 2 Samuel 7, who then was revealed in Psalms 89 and 132 and other Psalms that, and here, He's going to be that great king. A kingdom that will be established by his reign that will have no end and no earthly powers will overcome it. No heavenly powers can thwart it. And he will have all authority in all of the invisible world, all the visible world, all things in heaven and all things on earth and all things under the earth. His kingdom has come. Now, Mary's trying to take all this in. Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, and the, the, the baby John in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. The very presence of the Christ child by this time who had been conceived in her and who was very, very small, but was alive and growing in Mary's womb. And yet, John, when the presence of Jesus comes, even through Mary, leaps for joy, the Scripture says. Leaps for joy. Now, John must have already been regenerated in order to know who Jesus was, even from the womb. That's, that's somewhat of a mystery too, and I'm not going to try to explain that. Neither will I explain the wind. Uh, but these two boys were already interacting with each other even before they were born. Moms kind of get a kick out of it when the baby finally kicks, right? Well, what about when this baby is communicating to that baby and leaping in the womb in direct connection to this personal interaction. 
Now let's unpack a little bit of this Christmas story to see the significance of this historical and event that truly happened but has everlasting implications. The first thing that I would like for us to see about who this baby was, this Jesus would be the long-awaited and prophesied Messiah. Messiah. The Messiah. There have been many little little M messiahs along the way that would reveal the capital M messiah, the messiah. Because messiah really is a word that means uh, anointed one, to pour liquid over. And, and, And we see this picture as when one is anointed, they would take oil and pour it over the one who is anointed. And that's that oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit empowering that person for the office or the work that they had been given And here we have the anointed one. The word Christ in the New Testament is not the name of Jesus as much as it is his office. And the word Christ is really the Greek form of the Hebrew form of Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. You're thinking about it in terms of a a Jew living in first century. This is the long-awaited the Messiah. Now, these... Smaller messiahs were that which would reveal who Christ is when He finally comes. The anointed one. The Messiah. A prophet, as we have often defined in the past, was one who was chosen out from among God's people and anointed in order to represent God before the people. It's kind of like this way. A prophet then says, Thus saith the Lord. And he's the mouthpiece of God. A priest is one who is chosen out from among the people and anointed in order to represent the people before the face of God. While a prophet is kind of the direction this way, a priest is in the direction of this way. And a king is one who is chosen out from among God's people and anointed to be the deliverer that the people needed and to lead them in triumphant victory over all of their enemies that oppressed them. You have these three offices that have been revealed in the Old Covenant by way of the Spirit of God showing what great thing that the one Messiah will fulfill all three of those roles and offices in one person. So Messiah's role in life was to be this great mediator between God and man. A mediator. Because man needs a mediator. That is what our need is ever since the fall. We have needed someone to be the interface between God and man so that we can approach a holy God. We've got a problem. We're sinners. We're stained and polluted. And we cannot approach a holy, unpolluted, undefiled, pure, righteous judge and creator God without a mediator, a go-between. Back at the very beginning, Adam, who was the very first human being that was ever created, by virtue of Him being at the head of all of creation in terms of humanity, and in the head of all of earthly creation by virtue of His dominion that God had given Him, is, was, the federal head of the entire human race. He represented all of humanity. In fact, His name Adam is the same word that means or translated mankind. When you go into Hebrew, the only way you can tell if we're talking about a proper name, Adam, or the general mankind is only the context. It's the same word, humanity. When Adam sinned, he took all of humanity down into a state of sin. And Adam's sin was then propagated to all of his posterity. That's why Romans tells us so clearly That as by one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, 
And thus death has spread to all men because all have sinned. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For in Adam all die. Now this state into which we are born is something theologians would call original sin. It's the nature that we inherit from Adam. We come into this world with this fallen, sinful nature. What our great need is we have to have a new nature because that old nature is one of our enemies from which we need to be delivered. So from the very get-go, this is true. For the smallest of infants to the greatest and oldest of adults, we're all of a sin nature of Adam. Folks, there is no age of accountability in the Bible. That's why it was miraculous that John was regenerated in the wound. And I know that because he would not have responded joyfully to the Lord God of heaven if he were not. Because we all have a bent in our fallen nature against God and godliness. If there were some kind of age of accountability or anything close to that, Jesus would not have been needed to be born of a virgin. We need to get our doctrine right so that we understand the tremendous mystery and the profound nature of what is going on with Jesus. Sin is a rebellion against God in the very nature that we're born with. No matter if you like it or even disagree with it, you are born with a sin nature and are at enmity with God. The Bible declares it and God says it to be so. And you might not think about it that way, but that's what God thinks about it that way. And you better go with what God says rather than how you think. The result of this sin nature is a loss of fellowship with God. Now how profound is that? We were designed and created in the image of God. Designed in every kind of way that that image is meant to be. We are designed for fellowship with God. We are designed for fellowship one with another. In fact, part of that fellowship is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This Trinitarian fellowship within the Godhead itself. We are to be enjoying that. But fellowship has everything to do with relationship. You can't fellowship with people you don't have a relationship with. And fellowship has a a social aspect to it. It has an interactive aspect to it. To, to, To relate and fellowship, we interact. It's personal. It's not virtual, it's personal. Where there's true love that's being mutually enjoyed with those with whom you have fellowship. There's enjoyment of each other's company and personhood. There's mutual pleasure in relationships. See, this is all that we had with God and with each other in God. And that's why when death comes as a result of sin, it destroys that. ultimate lack of fellowship where none of those things, no true social interaction, no true love and personal interrelation, no mutual pleasure in relationships of persons. We've kind of been living in somewhat of a Worldwide taste of some death this year. Just a little inkling of it. But when there is a relationship that is destroyed between God and the individual, death ultimately will have no relationship between God and the individual. In fact, when ultimate death and the penalty for this in hell, there will not be any relationship between individuals. No social interactions that are personal. No love that's exchanged. All of these things that are dear to us. There will be none of that. 
See, to be human means that we are designed and created for fellowship. Designed to be social creatures. But since the fall of man in sin and disobedience to God, he has no ability to fellowship and enjoy God unless God himself acts on man's behalf to restore that which was lost. There's nothing man can do to save himself. In himself, he's utterly helpless. That's why man needs a mediator, a go-between, someone that can intercede and be the advocate for man, someone that can satisfy God. This is what Job was lamenting. This is what Job, as he verbalized what we need, says this, for he, that is God, for God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together? Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us? In in Job's great despair, he longed to have an audience with God, and he was longing for a mediator that could live to have his hand on both of us so that he would have an audience with God. A mediator is one to reveal God to us. So God is not foreign or estranged from us. A mediator is one who will stand between God and us and intercede for us. One who will be our advocate. And a mediator is one who will deliver us from our enemies and lead us to victory. He will deliver us from sin. He will deliver us from the world system. He will deliver us from all the external foes and dark forces that are invisible to our eyes but are really governing so much behind the scenes. He'll deliver us from Satan and his minions. He will deliver us from death itself. He leads us to victory. A mediator will give us fellowship with God. A mediator will restore the broken relationship. The mediator will restore the social joys and the love between our Creator and us. A mediator must be one who can lay his hand on both us and God at the same time. A mediator must be one chosen out from among God's people. He would need to identify with man and represent man to have one hand on man. But he also must have representation with God, the Creator, one who is accepted by God, who is not estranged with God, one who has an audience with God and a hand on God. Hand, hand, the mediator between God and man. Because of sin's nature that man inherits, we need a mediator who has an audience with God, not affected by that. And to be qualified for such a role, he would have to be both a man and he would have to be God. And here comes the story of how that was going to come to pass. Two things are needed to be qualified to be this mediator that we need. Number one, in order to be a mediator, the Messiah has to be able to identify with man, to be his advocate. He would need to be man himself. And as a man, the Messiah would become the new federal head of a new race of people. A people that he represented. And that is why he is chosen out from among those whom he represents before the face of God. He is one that would be chosen out from among the people in order to be the voice of God to them. He is one chosen out from among the people to deliver them from their enemies. He would have to be man. 
fully man, to represent man. But he'd have to be a man who isn't disqualified. A man who can succeed in what our first man, Adam, failed. One who can restore fellowship and relationship to God. He would have to be a man, but a man without a sin nature. And that's why he would be born of a virgin. The Old Testament prophecies like in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel, God with us. This was prophesied 600 and something years before Mary was this fulfillment. Now everyone knows that A human conception of a virgin is humanly impossible. That's why Mary was asking, well, Lord, how can this thing be? I've never known a man. That's why the angel says, ah, but with God, nothing's impossible. See, because of the nature of headship, being both federal, and in Adam's case, both federal and natural, the sin nature is carried down through the male. The federal aspect is a representation of the whole. The natural aspect is an organic aspect. In a sense, we all come from Adam. This is why the the case was made in Hebrews when it's speaking about the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Aaronic priesthood, that he said that even the Levites paid taxes to Melchizedek. Now, there was quite a distance. They were like 400 years later. But these Levites who came along 400-some years later paid paid tithes. Did I say taxes? Paid tithe to Melchizedek through the loins of Abraham. And that's part of the argument that um, Hebrews is making over the superiority of Melchizedek over the Levites, or the Aaronic priesthood. Now, the males... Federal and natural, but it's through the males that the the natural sin of Adam and the federal imputation of that comes. In my wife's side of the family, there is a disease that is called hemophilia. Hemophilia is typically carried by the females, and I'm going to say typically for those who have it, it is carried by the females, but it affects the males. It has to do with the uh, issue of blood clotting or the lack of it. Um, and so the, the females will carry this, but the male offspring are the ones who are affected by it. Fortunately, in our case, it's, it's pretty light, and we don't have any concerns about that. But when you think about it in terms of sin, it's very serious. Adam is the carrier of this, and it goes down through all the the male line, but then every one of us are affected by it. So because of the sinful nature of Adam coming down through the seed and the headship of Adam, Messiah has to be apart from that. He cannot be under Adam's headship, cannot be under his natural aspect of this corrupt seed, of this original sin, of this sinful nature. He cannot have a sinful nature from the get-go. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. He would be guilty from the very conception if he were not. From the very moment he's conceived, he would need to be regenerated as John was and was early regenerated even before his birth. But everyone that has the sin of Adam, you and me, need regeneration, need a new birth. But here was Jesus, born of a virgin. He had come into this world completely sinless and unaffected by sin or the nature. He came in without a sin nature. He came in without original sin. He had to be born a real human, nonetheless human and nothing less than a human, in order to have a standing with God, man, before the face of God, but in such a way that he didn't carry the problem with him as he came. A virgin birth was God's answer. 
He would be fully human and born of a woman, Mary. So the first qualification was met. Jesus was fully human, without original sin, born of a virgin. And so he was only and the only qualified one that could be man's representative. A new federal head. But in order for this man, who would now represent man before God, he would have to have a standing with God, and therefore he would need to be God himself. Man needed representation before God. Who can give representation before God? Who has an audience with God? Who has standing with God? God. Not even an angel. So this child, Jesus when he was born, would be called the Son of the Highest, the Son of God. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now it's important to know that the Son of God was the Son of God before Jesus was born to Mary. Let me just give just a couple of moments here to express this. Jesus existed, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, existed before He was born. He is eternal. But as the eternal Son of God, who was not yet human, was born at the incarnation of which we are now reading, the eternal Son of God would take on human flesh, and given his name, Jesus. From that point forward, for all of the rest of eternity, the Son of God would clothe himself in humanity, and forever from that point forward, from our historical perspective, he would be not only the eternal Son of God, but he would now be the eternal Son of God clothed in humanity. Eternally now human from that point forward. There was a time when he was not human. There is a time now that he will not ever be, not ever stop existing from being human. Always the Son of God. Always the person. He would, did not become the Son of God at his birth. It was the Son of God that then took on humanity and called his name Jesus. That's a very important distinction and some minute theological details to understand the Trinitarian aspects here. But this is quite a mystery. Messiah was the eternal Son of God. He was God Himself. He had standing with God. He could put His hand on man. He could put His hand on God. It was this unique baby that was about to be born who was going to be named Yahweh Saves. This little baby Jesus was fully human. This little baby Jesus was fully God. This little baby Jesus was fully qualified to be the one mediator between God and man. A person who could lay his hand on God, lay his hand on man, one person, but in two natures. This is why the mystery of godliness is so profound and called a mystery that God became flesh. This God-man, this Messiah, this anointed one chosen by God out from among God's people and anointed with the Spirit is the one who would accomplish what is needed as a mediator between God and man to establish what man needs to have fellowship with God, and to satisfy God with what God needed to have fellowship with us. As God, Jesus has standing with God. He's perfectly qualified to be the very perfect prophet and the spokesman to man. That's why Hebrews says, God who in various times and various ways spoke in times past by the Father's by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. As a man, 
Jesus has standing with man because He is a man without sin, and He is qualified to be the perfect priest and representative of God's people before the face of God. He can satisfy God with everything that was needed for God to have fellowship with us who have sinned. Jesus was also the perfect and long-awaited-for King who would deliver His people from all their enemies who oppressed them and the dark evil forces from within and the dark evil forces from without. Jesus overcame all the dark forces led by Satan. Jesus overcame all the powers that kept the world in the sway of the wicked one. Jesus overcame all of our own spiritual hearts, deceptions, and corruption that we inherited from Adam. And Jesus overcame death itself in His victorious resurrection. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The only one qualified to be Messiah. The only qualified mediator between God and man. His kingdom would be set up on the earth. After He finished dealing with man's sin on the cross, He rose from the grave three days later, pronouncing victory over every one of man's foes. After His ascension back into heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit and empowered His people to advance His kingdom here upon the earth, which has been growing for 2,000 years. As King Jesus is now reigning over all of the earth, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot be defeated. And it has no enemy that can. No virus will wipe it out. No nation can subdue it. No government can overthrow it. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is growing and its king and its final ultimate conclusion will have victory over all things that oppress us. Do not fear, my friends. This Jesus has already overthrown our enemies. Do not fear, my friends. This Jesus has overcome the world. That's the significance of this event when Mary and Elizabeth are giddy and happy with joy even before He was born. Then Mary sings the Magnificat. The song that the church will forever sing until the coming of Christ in glory. That's the good news of the gospel, people. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to world peace. Jesus is the answer to calm the turbulent soul. Jesus is the bread of life to feed those who are hungry. Jesus is the water of life for the thirsting soul. Jesus is the healer to everyone who is sick. Jesus is the resurrection and the life to all who are dead. Jesus is the power over the dark forces at work. Jesus is the wonderful counselor to all of your wisdom needs. Jesus is the mighty God who defends you from all of your foes. Jesus is the Father of eternity for all of those who fear their mortality. Jesus is the Prince of Peace to quieten all of your earthly fears, whatever those fears may be. Jesus is the Judge who sets right everything that is wrong here on the earth, where His scepter is a scepter of righteousness, where His judgment is good. Jesus is the answer to every one of man's problems. He has so much more than merely the answer to our needs and problems, but He is at least the answer to them all. He is the Messiah. He is our mediator. And now we have an audience with God our Creator through Him. May God be praised for Jesus. He is our prophet, and we hear God. He is our priest. And we have an audience with God. He is our King who delivers us and redeems us 
from every oppressive foe. He meets our every need. He gives us what our souls long for. In Him we are complete. Thanks be to God. And can I get an amen from Kelly? Amen. All right, let's pray. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for this joyful time when Mary comes and meets with Elizabeth, with these two boys that would be born, who would then prepare the way of the Lord, and then who would be the king himself that would bring his kingdom to this earth, who would bind the strong man, who would plunder his goods, who would take all of the nations that are rightfully his, and he would win them by the work of the cross through his perfect obedience, and through his valiant and victorious resurrection, through his ascension on high, through the sending of his spirit, is is an everlasting kingdom, and the kingdom that has no end. He is the king of all who are kings. He is the Lord who all over all who govern. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and we serve him this day. We have no need to fear those things which man can bring. We do not fear corrupt governments. How thankful we are that we have a king that will not exploit his people. How thankful we are that we have a king that does not lie, but he is the truth. We have a king that does not oppress us, but a king that delivers us from all forms of oppression. We have a king who rules righteously, a king who is ruling today, a king who is sovereign in our lives, a king who can do all those things that we need of him, a king that delights to do all those things that we need of him, and who desires to pour out upon us blessing of blessing to our cup runs over with things that we cannot imagine or think. Lord, we have a great king, a great priest, and a great prophet. How thankful we are for this mediator that puts his hand on us, that has his hand on God, who we in him are accepted before the face of God and have enjoyed the covenant love and fellowship along with the Trinity, that we love our Lord, we love the Holy Spirit, we love God the Father, and we know we're part of his family, and we know that nothing can stand against that love, not even death itself. So we are victorious in Christ, and for that we give you our praise and we give you our thanks for this King Jesus that was born that day and has been reigning ever since. In his name we do pray. Amen.